Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Jordan Moss. He's a psychology graduate and medical student at the University of Sydney in Australia. He has research interests in individual difference, differences with particular interest in personality theory and moral psychology. And today we're going to talk about uh, what characterizes the alt-right, the political correctness, authoritarians and liberals and stuff like that. So, Jordan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's good to be here. Yeah. Okay, so let's start perhaps with some definitions and by characterizing all of these different kinds of people. So, let's start with the alt-right. So... Uh, how is the alt-right defined and what are some of its most prominent traits? Yeah, right. Um, the alt-right is a confused term. Um, some of it is due to the media, sure. But a lot of it also has to do with the insincerity and the supposed humor of a lot of the adherents of the alt-right themselves. Um, so uh, as a loose definition, it describes people on the political right that reject mainstream conservatism. But more specifically, I'd say... It is a, or was, a white nationalist movement. Um, there's actually a good researcher on this for, uh, uh, just for the character, uh, characteristics of the, the alt-right. It's George Hawley. He's a university professor at the University of um, Alabama. And he's, he's simplified in his research three simple characteristics. Um, so the first tends to be uh, strong feelings of white solidarity, um, strong feelings of white identity, and a belief in the um, narrative that whites are being victimized in the United States. So uh, to kind of put all that together, members can disagree on topics like uh, um, economics, but they tend to all unite that the foundation to identity is race. So group identity is the first thing that you see. Yeah. So is the alt-right mostly an American phenomenon or do we also find it in other countries and with the same characteristics or not? Yeah, so the alt-right itself tends to be primarily situated in the, in the United States um, before its implosion um, that we can get to after the United the Right rally in Charlottesville 2017. But there are similar things popping up um, in European nations, a lot of populist movements that are happening over there. Um, and uh, the, the alt-right does seem distinctly European. For example, like Richard Spencer, one of the, the figureheads of the alt-right, has said that the movement is... Um, primarily motivated by German idealism, so Nietzsche, Heidegger. Um, so it's really the pushing forth for the populist, the um, group identity is the primar primary um, level of analysis. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, but, but when did these movements start exactly? Right. Um, the European one, oh, oh, it's, a, it's a little bit complicated. I'm less familiar with it, so I'll, I'll stick to the alt-right specifically. Yeah. Um, we, we now see the, the term in the context of the 2016 Trump campaign, right? But it is interesting to take it um, in, into the context of when it first began. So it originally started in articles um, on the back streets of the internet, web signs like Tacky Magazine, um, during a time when the Conservative Party, so the Republican Party in the United States, was losing some of its influence and respectability. So around the 2008 mark, right after the Bush era, um, Obama was nearly guaranteed the presidency. Um, and conservative values seemed to have less of a hold 
on the American culture. So public opinion on issues like gay rights, gun control, immigration, universal healthcare, the big topics um, was increasingly moving further to the left and it nearly guaranteed Obama's uh, presidency. Um, but an interesting thing to consider that's often lost in conversations relating to the alt-right, particularly in mainstream media, for example, is there's, there's a guy, um, Paul Gottfried, he's an author, professor, and um, career paleoconservative. He, he saw the potential decline of the neoconservative stronghold of the Republican Party at this time. And um, referencing the Buckley purges, um, that happened a few decades later, um, decades later, earlier, he um, suggested that the conservative establishment was politically inefficient and philosophically insincere. So rather than focus on the larger, greater cultural debate with the far left, they were losing that ground, trying to suppress or inundate dissenting views on the alt-right. So the deplorables, the, um, yeah, the, the people less likely to stay in um, uniform line yeah. Uh, what about personality traits? Is the, the alt-right or people that are part of the alt-right characterized by a specific personality traits? Mm, um, so uh, we, we, we um, me and a, a colleague, the supervisor at the time, Peter O'Connor at um, Queensland University of Technology, we looked, we published a few papers looking into the personality correlates of these ideas. And it was, it's actually quite difficult because there, there isn't too much research on the alt-right, especially the psychological correlates, everything like that. So it was all new territory and we really needed to be clear on what exactly we were looking at, everything like that. Um, and yeah, we, we did find some correlates. So the white identitarian attitudes of the alt-right were um, indicative of higher dark triad profile. So there's in psychology, there's the big five personality traits. And there's an underbelly of personality, which is the dark triad, the so-called dark profile um, of personality. And all of these traits, so Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy, um, all tended to predict these, um, a, yeah, alt-right, far-right, um, white identitarian attitudes. Mm -hmm. What about the political correctness people? Uh, I mean... In your work, I read about the political correctness, authoritarians and liberals. Let's start with the authoritarians. So what are these exactly? Yeah, most people don't really think about authoritarian political correctness. They just say woke cancel culture. So it's new terminology. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so what political correctness means very broadly is any effort to avoid or suppress potentially offensive content. Um, so the authoritarian aspect to this is avoiding or suppress, uh, suppressing offensive content using immediate autocratic methods. Um, so the image to have in your head here is the typical protest gone wrong on free speech. Um, the movement uh, seemed to start in the universities and proposes that um, offensive speech is equivalent to violence. So if free speech is a threat to emotional safety, um, it is only reasonable to want to constrain or control it in some way. And that's what the authoritarian, the cancer culture side of political correctness wants to promote. Um, on the other hand, the liberal proponents uh, appear to be a little bit different. They're primarily concerned with individual welfare. And they tend to represent the traditional or classic liberal effort to promote historically or socially disadvantaged groups. So the image to think of here is a liberal arts professor. Um, so while followers 
do promote the suppression of offensive material, they tend to support or well, definitionally support democratic means. Um, so uh, is that clear enough or? Uh, yeah, but let me just ask you, when it comes to political correctness, is uh, do we find it always on the left or are there also politically correctness uh, right wingers? Hmm. Well, colloquially, at least, it tends to be a phenomenon of the left. Um, uh, it, it really depends on so political correctness, if you're seeing it as a suppression of speech, that's. Suppression of speech has been highly associated with far right groups as well. They're not necessarily politically correct, but they're more religious orthodoxy, um, spe speaking against traditional um, institutions and hierarchy tends to raise an eyebrow and a lot of backlash where the political correctness doesn't seem to be concerned with these right wing um, attitudes They tend to be more focused on the egalitarianism, the equity, diversity, inclusivity um, that we're seeing more on the far left. Um, but, but it is interesting distinguishing between the left and the right because the authoritarians do, as I'm sure we'll get to later, have more of a, um, far right wing personality disposition, whereas the liberals tend to be very classically, um, of the left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And before we get to those kinds of comparisons, so talking about political correctness, authoritarians, does it imply then that we also have uh, authoritarianism in the left oh yeah for sure for sure it's um i i don't really understand why people get confused about the authoritarianism on the left i don't think authoritarians discriminate um very broadly they don't care if they're on the left or the right um and you, you can see this historically right um, mao stalin um i don't think they're your typical right wingers but um yeah, it, it does seem to be lost in the history books, and I, I, I don't understand why. But is it something that's not been really that well studied in psychology? I mean, the authoritarianism on the left? Yeah. Um, so the authoritarianism, like, uh, traditionally did focus on the right-wing, right-wingers. Um, but it, it seems to be more researcher bias than anything else. Um, and I, I guess translating it, uh, to the political correctness, like the social justice warriors just don't elicit the same fear in us as skinheads. We've really, we've done a good job at identifying where things can go array on the right. We know where um, a movement may signal, to, we know the sorts of things in a movement on the right that signal that it's gone too far. But on the left, it's a little bit harder to figure out. And, and people like uh, uh, Jordan Peterson tend to talk about this issue a lot. And... Um, have suggested things like equity. As soon as people start talking about equity, that's our red flag. The left is going too far. But it, it just seems much harder to disagree with somebody, especially stridently, if they're just saying, look, I'm just trying to be nice. I'm trying to make everybody equal. It's it's not as fervent, I guess, as your anger against a, a skinhead saying um, racist or anti-Semitic statements. Mm -hmm. uh, and what about personality traits? Do we know what are the ones that characterize uh, political correctness people, the authoritarians and the liberals? Yeah, so um, I spoke about the dark triad traits before, so I guess I'll kind of just jump on those before I go into the big five. Um, yeah. So it, it was really interesting. Um, the dark triad traits tend to 
coalesce more with the authoritarians. So um, Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy, um, as well as high entitlement, pr positively predicted the authoritarian political correctness. Um, whereas the liberal PC was negatively associated with, with psychopathy. So the more psychopathic you are, the less likely you to be liberally politically correct. And it, it does serve as a good distinction between the liberals and the authoritarians um, around PC. So the liberal arts professor is not necessarily a psychopath, but those who engage in violent protests are high in all of the dark triad traits. Um, and I, I think it just makes sense on its face. Yeah. And what about comparing the alt-right to the PC kind of folks, particularly the authoritarians? Do they have any particular traits in common? Yeah, so, yeah, they, they tend to be high um, in the dark triad traits as we've gone through, but also uh, there's a common variable, moral absolutism. Um, so moral absolutism, very simply, is the tendency to see the world in a black and white way. So people are either good all the time or bad all the time. There's no gray. Um, political correctness and white identitarianism were both predicted by this trait. So for the woke, um, if you're a member of the of a minority group, you are oppressed always, no matter what. And if you're rich, you're bad always, no matter what. Um, and for the alt-right, the distinction is solely racial. So if you're white, um, according to the alt-right, you're good. If you're not, eyebrows are raised. Um, so it, it's different manifestations, but it's coming from the same source. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about perhaps a little bit later about the psychological differences between uh, people on the right and the left more generally. But do we find uh, some of the traits that are common to people on the left and the right also uh, manifested in uh, the alt-right and the PC folks? I mean, for example, are the political correctness people more agreeable, for example? Yeah, yeah. So um, the Big Five has always been really helpful in understanding politics. Um, you hear a lot of people, even smart people, say, I, I, I don't understand why somebody's opinion on one issue necessarily correlates with another. So if somebody's believing um, is promoting climate change, why do they necessarily have to be promoting universal health care or something like that? And understanding it from a personality perspective um, tends to clarify some of these uh, confusions. So political correctness was largely explained by trait agreeableness. Um, so it, it, it makes sense. So those who engage in social justice causes are more compassionate. Um, it, it just makes sense on its face. But there was a distinction again between the authoritarian PC and the liberal PC. So both were predicted by agreeableness whereas um, compassion predicted liberal political correctness and another trait. Um, uh, so wait, I, I think I got that a little bit confused. So low politeness predicted authoritarian political correctness, while um, another trait called openness to experience predicted liberal PC. So just to summarize, to uh, neaten out that um, mess that I made is, so both political correctness subgroups were predicted by agreeableness. Um, if you're interested in ideas, you're going to be liberal PC. And if you're impolite, so low in politeness, you're more likely to be the authoritarian aspect. 
Um, oh, okay. So, uh, I mean, when it comes to the PC folks and dividing them between the authoritarians and the liberals, the liberals tend to be more open to experience than the authoritarians. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So the liberal arts professor is compassionate and interested in things, while the violent protester is compassionate but impolite. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier, when you mentioned the trait that the PC authoritarians and the alt-right have in common, that is moral absolutism, uh, does that connect in any way with some of the big five traits or any other personality traits? Or is that something, or is that uh, uh, something that is apart from all of that? Yeah, so... You know, I don't. I haven't actually looked into the correlation between the Big Five and moral absolutism. It is a distinct construct, so it won't form okay. nicely into the personality model of the Big Five. But it could be explained explained at least partially by some of them. But I'd, I'd only be hypothesizing. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, so what about social media use? Is that something that characterizes both the alt-right and the PC folks? Do we find it more on one side than the other? Yeah, so the results are a little bit confusing. The, the data is not clear. So social media predicts white identitarian um, attitudes. Um, sorry, it doesn't predict white identitarian attitudes, but it does okay. predict political correctness, um, which, which is very strange because the alt-right manifested in its, um, well, its birthplace was the back streets of the internet. So you'd expect more internet use, more social media use, um, uh, more engagement with alt-right um, content, but that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Um, and it, it may be as simple as um, that there's more liberal content on sites like Facebook. So most of our sample identified Facebook as their primary site of use. Um, and it, it wouldn't be surprising if the more time you spend on Facebook, the more um, political content you're likely to see, and therefore the more likely you are going to be reinforced by the so-called echo chambers. Um, other research that I've um, found tends to indicate that liberals are more likely to use social media more generally. So um, people higher in extroversion and openness tend to um, be politically engaged on social media sites which would show a preference toward the liberal um, conversation. So it, it may just be as simple as there's not as many people in the conservative um, um, party on social media sites. Mm -hmm. And black and white thinking, is that something that we find both on the alt-right and the PC folks or not? Yeah, so uh, moral absolutism, um, the black and white thinking um, was seen in everything. Um, so the white identitarians, they were high in it, um, authoritarian political correctness and liberal political correctness were high in as well. Um, and it, it may actually explain some of the difficulty in trying to reach out to adherents of either group. It's just because the nuance that um, people like you and I would like to think we're engaging in is just lost. Um, they're not interested in the gray areas. Um, yeah. So, is there any other trait that characterizes the PC folks? So, for example, I have here that uh, you, we also have perceived overprotective parenting. So, the overprotective parenting. Um, so, Lukianov and Hype were one of the primary contributors 
to the way that I was conceptualizing um, the issues of political correctness. So they uh, published a book and uh, an article beforehand in the Atlantic titled The Coddling of the American Mind. And the general thesis was something like um, over the last few decades, there has been generational changes in how parents are rearing their children. So um, since the 1980s, parents are becoming increasingly protective of their children. Um, while, while, it, while with the best intention, without the opportunity to explore the world independently, children are just not developing the resilience necessary to tend to their problems on their own. Um, so in, instead they're taught that an external body is um, ever waiting to solve one's personal struggles. And as this generation grew older and is something resembling um, political influence in today's culture, a hyper-vulnerable mentality introduced terms like safe spaces and microaggressions um, in universities. Um, and th this was supported with some of the data that's that's coming out now. It's So younger participants tend to report having more overprotective parents. They tend to report um, lower levels of resilience, and both of these factors contribute to the adoption of authoritarian PC. Um, and, and it's important to note that um, these things didn't contribute to liberal PC. So again, there's a clear distinction between the motives of these um, two groups. Mm -hmm. uh, since you mentioned Hyde, uh, did you also study the moral foundations that characterize the PC uh, liberals and authoritarians and the alt-right? Um, we haven't. I'd be very interested in doing that. I, I'm actually talking to one of the, or well, a few of the other uh, people involved in this um, research and we're, we're debating as to whether or not we should add it in the next project um, but i'm definitely on your end i, I want to see it <laughs> yeah okay so i, I mean then talking about just talking about for a little bit the um, the personality traits of the left and the right more generally so earlier you mentioned the distinctions between the pc authoritarians and the pc liberals but uh, Talking about the left and the right more generally, without touching on the extremes, perhaps, uh, when it comes to the big five, what are some of the biggest differences in terms of personality traits? Yeah, for sure. Um, so personality traits have a, um, a huge contribution to political orientation. Liberals tend to be high in openness and low in conscientiousness. So they're interested in ideas, but they're not very... They're not necessarily orderly or dutiful industrious. Um, where the reverse is true of conservatives, they're highly conscientious, but lower in um, trade openness. It, it, it tends to make sense. So if you were conceptualizing the left and the right as the balance between order and chaos, um, conscientiousness is order. It's routine, walls are up. Um, there's no permeability between uh, different areas. It's it's very structured and routine. Where liberals is more chaotic, open to new things, interested in ideas and um, malleable. Um, and so this is using the big five, of, uh, as you said, but a more specific or sophisticated analysis reveals that the aspects of personality, so that the sub-traits um, mm -hmm. also contribute to political orientation. Um, so agreeableness, was generally thought to have a non-significant association with political um, orientation. So it didn't contribute to the um, conservatives or the liberals. But 
as um, models of personality became multifactorial, so different levels, not just a trait analysis, um, researchers found a pretty complicated picture. So agreeableness, as we've said before, has two sub-aspects. There's um, compassion on one hand and politeness on the other. So conservatives tend to be high in politeness and um, liberals tend to be higher in compassion. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, about the other four big five personality traits and their aspects, isn't there any other major difference that we know about? Uh, there are. So, some would say that extroversion has a, um, a contribution. Well, uh, individual papers tend to find significance in all of the traits, but the majority of the research really identifies the two. So, openness and conscientiousness. The other is a little bit uh, more controversial. Mm-hmm. So, are there any differences in how you approach the study of the more mainstream, moderate political attitudes and the more extreme ones, like people on the alt-right and the PC folks? Yeah, um, I wouldn't necessarily say so. It's only easy with ethics. The more moderate the political attitude, it's much easier to get through. We had a, a lot of difficulty trying to justify why we needed um, some of the statements of the alt-right, particularly um, looking into racial differences and um, asking participants, um, do you believe one race is superior over the other? The, um, that raised a lot of eyebrows. But um, uh, apart from the, the politics and the, um, yeah, the ethical consideration, there's not too much difference. It's just, uh, you just uh, have your variables in mind and it's just a matter of measuring them after that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and about how people become extreme, uh, extreme politically? I mean, is it that people that have the sort of personality traits that characterize these more extreme groups tend to gravitate toward the extreme? Or is it also that some people that are more moderate in their personality traits uh, are pushed to the extremes by the sort of political and social context. I mean, are there any environmental factors that we know about, for example? Mm. Yeah, it's a classic debate between nature and nurture. Um, I, I guess it, it's reinforcing. So. Um, people with certain personality traits will find others with those traits. So if you like playing tennis, you should try to make friends with those who like to play tennis. Um, but if your environment doesn't allow it or your peers just aren't interested, you may um, be forced to sublimate your energy into another activity. And now, unfortunately, everybody is interested in politics, which is just horrible. <laughs> um, so these traits that are... Um, contributing to the adoption of these extreme attitudes are an inherent part of human personality. And whether these traits are a larger or a smaller part of the decision-making process varies for each individual. Um, And what it seems to me is that we are creating an environment that, or we have manufactured a political environment, specifically political environment, where the dark triad traits appear to be an adaptive advantage. Um, It actually, you can see it like this. So, Despite being on opposite ends of the um, political spectrum, both the woke and the right are philosophically postmodern. It seems that way anyway. Um, the group is the fundamental level of analysis and its power struggle all the way down. And if you 
if you want power, if power is what you want, you don't need to be polite about it. The dark traits, um, manipulative, selfish, cutthroat um, types of personality is actually preferable. Um, but I am a little bit worried because these short-term strategies aren't sufficient or commensurate with running a society over um, over the long term, I suppose. Um, so there is a, a reason to, to worry why we're trying to encourage these traits in our political discourse when the longer they hold um, precedence in the political debate, the weaker, I would say, our culture becomes in the end. So to answer your question in a very roundabout way, very tangential, um, it's it, it's really a bit of both. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what, so, sorry. Oh no, you go ahead. You go ahead, it's right. Yeah, no, uh, I was just about to ask, so when you mentioned that perhaps uh, we are creating a bad political environment, I mean, what do you mean by that? Could it be more precise? Mm. I, I would say that, that it's not arbitrary that these um, political attitudes are coming into the forefront of political discourse at this moment. There's a lot of, like, with, with political discourse is really hard to have. And even if you're really well-researched well in this area, you need to consider the opposite side because it's likely that your absolute conviction is in something is misguided. And the more certain you are, the less likely your opinion should be taken seriously because there's just too many moving variables to grab onto one and say, this is the absolute, I've got it right here. And what things like social media, I'd say social media is, is the big culprit here, but uh, I'm, I'm sure there are others that I just haven't necessarily considered as in depth. Um, there's only so many um, things you can consider in a limited um, tweet. So you only have so many characters to show your opinion and it, a tweet really condenses um, in something into slogans. And it seems like a lot of the political discourse is just chanting like one, two, three, four, I don't like racism or I don't like the progressive agenda. It's like, no guys, like, it's more complicated than a simple chant. And the more that we're relying on this, um, these repetitive, non-cerebral ways of thinking, it, it's, yeah, it's concerning. But I, I don't know, would you say that social media has the primary, uh, is one of the biggest moving variables here, or would you consider other aspects of um, society contributing to this? Well, I, I mean, in terms of the causality, uh, I, it's interesting because I've been talking with people that do research on social media and how people mm -hmm. use it and the sort of effects it has on political attitudes, political behaviors, and uh, I mean, it seems that there are very few people that are really politically active on social media and echo chambers doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. It's mostly people who are part, who are already the most politically active that tend to gravitate toward those kinds of forums, let's say. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure, but I, I think it seems to me at least that the causality points the other way around in terms of, okay, people are already the most politically active are the ones that tend to spread more uh, political content on the internet and tend to be more 
uh, engaged with political news and political content on the internet. And I, I mean, mo most people don't seem even to be that that much interested in politics, either online or offline. So, I mean, I don't know what do you think about it. I, I think it's completely like I, I have read a lot of data saying like what it is like eighty percent of the tweets on Twitter conducted by 20% of its users. Yeah. So stuff like that is pretty compelling. Um, but social social media allows an avatar to speak on your behalf, right? So it, and, mm -hmm. and under anonymous circumstances, it, it's not surprising that people are willing to say or do horrible things um, in an inconceived or intolerant way because the consequences of doing so just, just aren't there. There's no um, individual responsibility. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that has something to do with it. I also wouldn't be surprised if, hmm, I don't, I, I don't know, it's complicated. What have your other guests tend to, tend, tended to think about um, this particular issue? Uh, well, I, I mean, the, the the opinions are more or less divided. There are some people, but uh, I don't I don't have any guest at least until now who said explicitly that they think that uh, social media and digital media are causing or driving political polarization. There are some of them that say that perhaps it could have uh, an effect, but the vast majority say that probably what we get on social media is just, uh, I mean, a manifestation of what we already find in society. And so social media wouldn't be uh, causing political mm -hmm. polarization or political extremism or something like that. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I suppose just to, constrain what I was saying so I don't seem as if I'm getting ahead of the skis like I I am I am really worried about social media for example like other 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 research with mental health with the rates of depression in adolescent females for, for example skyrocketing since the introduction of um, the internet social media like Facebook um, there are horrible trends that have been um, associated with social media use but I, I really don't think we know how much social media has contributed to this sort of thing. Um, and with, the, with the, the data that I've been associated with, the correlations are positive in the direction of political correctness. They're contributing to the far left. But like you're saying, it, it does seem multifactorial. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a cause, but I'm sure it's a non-significant contributor. Right, so you, you wouldn't say that social media use itself would be causing, uh, I mean, the emergence of these politically extreme groups. Well, our, our data didn't say that it contributed to the far right, which which was surprising, but it did say that it contributed to the left. So I wouldn't say that it is the cause, but I would say it's one of many moving variables that is contributing or pushing us in a direction that we should be suspicious of, I suppose. Um, and the most uh, commonly way of conceptualizing this is uh, the echo chambers. Mm -hmm. uh, so what would you say are, would be some of the other main variables there? Mm. Well, 
Oh, I'm Luke Enough and Heights, of course, the year of protective parenting. Uh, the generational changes in uh, resilience levels is, is pretty compelling. Um, it, it's just a sound argument. Other, other stuff like I, I don't I don't know. It, it's it's hard. I think there's a currency in having a political attitude. Um, saying I stand for something. Um, it, it it's it's easy and. Um, I'm I'm not sure as what you said as people aren't as interested in politics. Maybe I'm in the wrong circles, but it seems like everybody um, I'm talking to is wanting to talk about politics, and everybody has an opinion on everything. And I, I think the, the certainty and attitudes, moral absolutism, has contributed a substantial part to it as well. But as to other environmental things, I am I'm really in the dark. Right, but but I I mean you're really not sure about, uh, apart from social media, what could be other of the factors behind political mm. polarization and the emergence of these kinds of extreme political groups? Mm. Well, another compelling thing that I've heard is the, the ascendancy of comfort. Um, in the West, at least, life is pretty comfortable. We don't need, like, tomorrow I, I would find it very unlikely that I would starve to death over the next few days, that tomorrow I run out of food, everything's um, underwater and I'm, I'm in trouble. So every day is not a fight to survive. So we have a, a sort of luxury, and it, it seems in that luxury, uh, boredom abounds. Arguing with people is, is a great way to manifest meaning, um, interest, and social relations more generally. It, it, it's kind of like as soon as humans achieve paradise, the, the first thing that we'd like to do is tear everything up. Um, so I, I think that has something to do with it. I also think that, although it's ill-guided, and I think that the West has serious geopolitical enemies, it's not at the forefront of um, a lot of people's minds. We, we don't tend to think of China or Russia as serious opponents to the West, um, motivated for the demise and uh, global takeover is what we would have done, say, during the Cold War. And without an external threat, it, it's not surprising. I'm not saying that this is causal. I'm just saying it, it's not surprising that um, the united front of a United States dissolves a little bit and fragmenting and uh, in-group arguing occurs more because there's, there's there's just no external friction to push us together <clears throat> so i i mean i'm not sure is there any other thing you would like to mention to talk about because i mean basically the the sorts of questions i have here we've I've already covered them all so yeah uh I don't know. Um, I, I would be interested in like, trying to figure out, because I, I put a lot of blame on social media. I'm really worried about it. And if that's if you're not getting the same impression, I'd really like to be disillusioned of that. Um, if you'd like to cover, but it's just me asking you questions now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean... It's complicated, of course. I, I'm not a researcher, so I have more or less to rely on what people say. But it seems mm. to me that, I, I mean, if you talk to political psychologists, 
many of them say that people people in general are not that interested in politics and then for example uh, per, and I'm not sure if that would be a sign of uh, political polarization directly or not, but you have something like uh, fake news on social media and it seems that it's a very, very tiny minority of people that share fake news on social media also because it, it has some... Uh, it brings some reputational damage to them. So it's very, very few people who do that. And also in terms of, I mean, the, the, the data on that, in terms of how many people share fake news is more clear than how many people consume fake news. But right. uh, it, seem, it seems that uh, the best explanation to why people share true or false news has m much more to do with uh, the way they are politically oriented. Okay, so for example, if, if a piece of news goes against the people they are politically opposed to, they tend to share it either, either if it's fake or true, and if it favors their political party or their political orientation, they also share it. But it yeah. doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to be uh, uh, lots of evidence in favor of the idea that uh, what happens in social media really translates into uh, right. into people differing in their political orientation that it has some sort of causal power over that and even when it comes to the the studies analyzing uh, the effect social media uh, have on political behavior, like, for example, voting behavior, it's, it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be negligible. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I would say that that's most of what I would say. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure that, that it's complicated. And just the other day I talked with a researcher who told me that, I mean, many studies who are done on these, I mean, they, they have their limitations and it's very hard to uh, have yeah. control, uh, controlled studies on social media. So, I, I mean, it's, it's a bit complicated, but it doesn't seem to be, at least for now, lots of evidence uh, and compelling evidence suggesting that social media has any sort of causal power over people, people's political attitudes and political behavior. So, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, I, I certainly hope so. Because I, I, I I'm, I'm starting to create a very despondent view on the social media sites, and it, it's something associated like with the increasing technology and the ability for people to talk and reach a, a larger audience, um, an individual statement from somebody who hasn't really followed up with the data or isn't as interested or wants brownie points um, from their political group can make a statement. And its influence, though one would assume would be ne negligible without the internet, once it's broadcasted, it, it's, it, it, there is a certain level of chance that um, somebody can accidentally become 
overnight famous from a single tweet that they just tweeted instantly without without thought and i there's a lot of benefit to that um like the the sharing of information but i'm also concerned how and it, it seems like the social media platforms are concerned as well especially with the the removal of trump for the next few a few years from um social media sites that an individual has such a wide-ranging audience um despite expertise or or citations or references everything like that and that actually i'll also mention this because this is actually very interesting and which is what really pushed me down this more despondent darker path than what i assume that you've taken is that uh, there's research suggesting that people who have disparate views when they meet talk through it tend to disengage their extreme attitudes and they take the other side after a conversation and they're like oh the conservative wasn't as arrogant as i thought he was or the liberal wasn't as um uh, emotionally volatile as what i thought there wasn't the stereotypes tend to break down but when this is done online the effect isn't nearly as positive it tends to reinforce um the political attitude. So when you show a conservative a tweet or a, a leftist organization pr primarily promoting their um, content on Facebook or something, they tend to disengage even more than what they would have. Um, this was studied by Bail uh, by Bail et al. B A I L in 2017, I think, and just completely blew my mind. I'm like, oh man, that's that's really negative. Um, but I'm yeah, glad that, Christ Christopher Bale, right? Yes. Yeah, he wrote a recent book, uh, Breaking the Social Media Prism. That's one of the interviews I've already published about the topic. And yeah, he's, he's one of the people that says that... Uh, I mean, it's interesting because in the book he also presents another sort of thing that evidence for another sort of thing that we haven't talked about here that is he says that uh, political polarization uh, on social media i mean people who use social media a lot have uh, an exaggerated perception of political polarization so we, we we perceive more political polarization in social media than we really find it in offline life so i mean when when for example you survey people on the right and the left and of course most of these studies are done on, in the us and so they compare conservatives to liberals and republicans to democrats but in most topics people don't disagree that much and particularly the most fundamental things though so he calls it uh, false polarization on social media. I mean, if you go to social media, it seems that everyone is polarized, that everyone is part of echo chambers, and everyone has uh, political political opinions on everything, and uh, no one agrees with anyone. But that that's, that seems to be. Uh, I mean, that's probably another important issue when we're talking about social media. If you go to social media, you get that perception. But if you talk or survey people uh, in real life, for lack of a better term, then people don't seem to disagree that much, at least on the more fundamental subjects. So. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I said. Uh... 
I, I can see how um, one's perception is completely swayed by um, social media use. And I, I'm, I'm an addict, so it, it's, it's to know to know one's um, downfalls is, I suppose, the first step. But it, it would be interesting. Did you manage to get his opinion on the the Pew data that's been coming out, suggesting that it's not only online that people are disagreeing, but more generally, uh, the voters or the the platforms of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party in the U.S has over the last few decades slowly started to separate from the center where in 1990s um i, I think about 10 10 I, I won't give just in case i accidentally misinformed but the overlap between the um, um the, the, the two main parties in the us was substantial and slowly year by year we're creeping away from one another um, uh, I mean, we, we didn't talk specifically about that, but are, are you talking about people who are members of the respective parties or, or, yeah, just, so, or just people who generally identify as Republican or Democrat? Yeah, so people who are voting in favor of um, certain policies, so the, 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 the voters of the United States, civilians, yeah. Oh, the, the civilians as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm really not sure about that. I, the only thing that I know when we talked about in that interview is that uh, when you survey regular people on the street and uh, ask their opinions about, I don't know, uh, healthcare, education and stuff like that, Mm. Uh, people who are who identify as Republican and Democrat tend to agree more than they disagree. So that's, that's a, pos a very positive data point. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's why I asked you if you were talking about uh, party members or just regular people who identify uh, as Republican or Democrat, because I, I don't know, perhaps there could be a difference there. Perhaps people who are really part of the parties and are really politicians would be more polarized than regular people. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah, swept up more into it. Yeah. Yeah, but that would, the particular data that I'm referencing is, is just the voters. Yeah. But even so, they weren't collected in person. It would, it's like, um, I think they did like telephone interviews, everything like that. So maybe that's a mediating variable as well. I wouldn't think so, but who knows? Yeah. Okay. So I guess that the conclusion here is that the this is a messy subject. So probably we have to study it a little bit more to really know what are the causes here and if we have more or less political polarization than it seems on social media. So. Uh, anyway, just before we go, uh, would you like to mention where people can find you and your work on the internet? Um, yeah, so I'm writing a few articles at ARIO. Um, other than that, I'm trying to keep away from this sort of thing. I'm trying to finish my studies before I uh, get neck deep into all of, the, all of the controversial topics that I'm yeah, listening to and uh, possibly reading about. But... Yeah, so if anybody's interested, just to Aria, um, Jordan Moss, I'm sure something will come up. Okay, great. So, Jordan, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah thanks. 
Hi guys, thank you for watching the interview until the end. Please do not forget to support the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. So you have links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. For even just $1 per month, you can support the show and get access to all the goodies I have to for you in Patreon. Uh, and you also have links to PayPal, of course. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzkan, Blanchett Perlager, Larson, Lauro Francis Ford, and Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Erika Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuburger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Sandrubano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Kusson, Evan Bodrink, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Eden Solon, Roman Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sérgio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegnam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Nirvan Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.